Rebecca Rosenblum just graduated from the English and Creative Writing Master's Program at the University of Toronto. She's been published in Exile, the Danforth Review, Echolocation, the New Quarterly, Maisonneuve. Once is her first book. It's a book of short stories. And it won the Metcalf Rook Award for Fiction. Rebecca lives in Toronto, Ontario. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. Happy to be here. I made some notes on what Flannery O'Connor has said about good short stories, and I want to riff off that with you, unless you want to do something completely different. No, no. What do you want to do? Um, Whatever you want to do. I take direction really well. Do you? Yeah. No, I want this to be a give and take. Okay. Yeah. Let's start with details. One of the characteristics of a good short story details how you see them. You see them and how you see them. So how do you see details? In the world or in the work? Do you try to replicate the real world? I try to create a world that could be here. I mean, it's not because it's fiction and these people aren't real and they don't own those clothes and they never argued with their neighbors. The neighbors aren't real either, but it should be close enough that if it were there, it wouldn't it would flow from this, and I mean, I know you asked what, what would flow from this. Like if I lived next door to my characters, it wouldn't it wouldn't be a disjunct. They're not real, so I can't do that. But I, I want it to seem plausible. You 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 consider plausibility to be an important criteria, then? Yeah, and details are are what creates that the stuff that is in the story that does touch upon like our real lives. Like obviously, not everything in the stories are things that I've seen happen. But they could feasibly happen in a rational world. Yeah, or they're not too far off from a rational world. Maybe like the incantatory power of the dishes at Fomai 99. I haven't seen it yet, but I wanted the details of the food and of the bus and of those girls' lives, everything to be small and precise enough that you knew about that stuff. You could feel it and taste it. Um, so when something happens that is beyond people's experience, that they're grounded enough to, to maybe go with me that extra step beyond what they already know. Which gets to the nub of an important debate that goes on between people that think that the best fiction is the fiction that's grounded in the real, realism. And is this what you strive then to do because you feel that this is the best way to draw the reader into what it is you want to tell them? Uh, no, it's the way I know how to do it. The way I've learned so far and the way that it's the stories that I want to read. You, you write the stories you want to read? Yeah. I mean. So it's definitely not the best or the only, like there's a lot of stories that I also enjoy reading that don't draw from the real and are still a great pleasure, but this is kind of how I'm working right now, at least starting in the nitty-gritty and going on my flights of fancies from there, if I go. Donald Bartholomew has missed something because he stays pretty far away from the breakfast table and the kitchen sink. He's a wonderful writer and extremely challenging and and brilliant, but mainly I can't do that. Not where my, my interest as a writer lies. Or my interest as a reader, or something. 
that perhaps gets to another debate between focusing on character versus plot. You start with, and let's, let's quote Flannery here, the character's personality creates the action of the good story. Start with a real personality, then something is bound to happen. Don't have to know what is going to happen before you begin. You ought to be able to discover something from your stories. If you don't, probably no one else will. That's pretty good. I always start with the people. My starting is often a long, long time before I write it. I am interested in in characters and lives and how people live in the world. And I have a lot of time and energy to make up everything or like large portions of what happened before the story and after the story and and other characters that maybe are in their lives but not in the story and so the the thinking i'll usually know a huge amount about the character before i sit down i can't Mm -hmm. use all that and then i'll write a huge amount that i can't use also like less than i thought about but more than anyone wants to publish and then it's, it's just a winnowing down to the to get it to a reader so that they understand all the stuff, all the rest of the iceberg. Um, In other words, without actually writing it, then. That leads leads into O'Connor saying, state as little as possible, connections from things shown give depth. They increase the story in every direction. And this is how it escapes being short. Yeah, that's how I feel. I feel that a lot of the story lies in the ellipses, like the things that you don't say that you kind of know, like when you read a good writer, that there is a page after the last page and there was a page before the first page. And to have enough detail in it that you could fill in the rest or you would want to or you would think about it after you shut the book. Yeah, I don't I don't think they're short at all. I just think there's gaps. Right. You can't really develop a character over time. You can just give a snapshot because you just don't have this space. Is that what you're doing? No. Uh, well, not always. Some of the stories, I guess. I mean, I do push the envelope in terms of length a little bit. Some of these stories are pretty long, and I I do try to show the characters moving through something, usually. Maybe. Through kind of some kind of change, or some kind of crisis, or... Sometimes, or just a... a an experience which they're going to get something from. And it, it's always interesting to go with someone to, to what they're going to learn, even if it's minor or kind of ignored or, or not where you expect it to go. Like I do like, I do like to see a process with, with characters because I get so wrapped up in them. I like to follow them a little ways anyway. So a 20-page short story, that, that's really at the edge of what I think is acceptable probably. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of those, the 20 pages. Yeah, one of them is called Hunt Ed. Yeah, the first one. That's the first one, and I'm speaking with Rebecca Rosenblum, who has recently published her first book of short stories with Biblioasis, and it won the Metcalf Rook Award, funded by Stephen Temple. Yeah. Stephen Temple Books. Cool guy. Yeah, yeah. very. That's um, wife Jennifer, also very nice. Oh, is she? Yeah. Don't know her. I just met her on the evening, but they were lovely. Stephen Temple, of course, is the premier antiquarian book dealer in Canada, if not North America. 
So, 20 pages. And you want to take the reader on a bit of a journey with this character then? Yeah. I mean, nothing uh, epic. Well, like, for example, taking a introductory tax preparation course. Yeah, that gives you a good uh, structure for a story. The length of a semester, the learning process. I mean, that story, I definitely don't think it's a it's a nail-biter. But I think it is interesting what Isabel wants, or what she thinks she wants, and how she goes about getting it, and what she ends up with at the end of that. So it, it's not all in one place. It's not a snapshot, It's or it's a series. It's a series of images of someone getting a little bit farther down the path, I think. What path? <laughs> to... To getting what you want. I mean, the fiction workshop, one of the salvos is all characters have to want something, and once you know what they want, then you can work out a plot. That's right. In fact, getting back to Flannery, that's one of her after-detail motivations, number two on her list, to explain the action. Yeah, and it doesn't have to be Herculean. That's not the right metaphor. <laughs> but I mean, these small... It doesn't have to be a big deal. It's just a life lesson that she may have learned. Oh yeah, I mean, she just doesn't. She doesn't want to be a waitress forever. She wants to do something that maybe has a little bit more value in her own eyes and in the eyes of others. And she's not really sure what that would be. So she's exploring different paths. Yeah. John Metcalf, who's your editor. Yeah. I agree with him when he says that this opening sentence is a beauty. Eva's place is busiest in the evenings. Lots of fried cheese and ass grabbing near midnight. There's a guy who kind of accosts her. And then he uh, makes the mistake of accosting Eva as well. Yeah. And gets thrown out. But I thought of ass grabbing as something positive. Huh? But maybe ass grabbing's not positive. Well, I don't like fried cheese either. Um, depends on your viewpoint. I mean, to go back to Isabel's desire, she doesn't want to be a waitress and she's not good at it. She doesn't enjoy it. Eva, who runs the place, is very good at it. And she can handle everything and she enjoys her work. So desire is all about the personality, right? If I loved fried cheese, then a whole different world of restaurants would open up to me. Right. So Isabel doesn't like the ass-grabbing. No. What were you expecting? I don't know. I just... Lots of fried cheese and ass-grabbing around near midnight. That sounded kind of fun to me. (laughs) But if you're on the receiving end of getting your ass grabbed without your wanting it, that's not so much fun. That would be a good incentive to take an introductory tax preparation course. This is my feeling. Goes to the belt's feeling. So if you're a chauvinist male, you may misread some of your stories. Do you think? I think I don't mind. I mean, sometimes people will come to me and tell me about this wonderful connection they found in one of my stories where something echoes back. I'm like, I didn't mean to do that. I didn't get it. But I like their reading way better than what I have. And it's there on the page for them. More power to them. So I have to take criticism that comes from... But not even so much criticism as, as you say, just a different take on it. It's not your book once it's out there. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting okay with that. <laughs> people read well in the, in the main. So I trust, I trust most people with this book. That's interesting. What's reading well? Getting what you're intending? No, reading with close attention and care and trying to get there. If it doesn't work for you, then maybe I'll get you next time. You know, that's okay. Let's move then to the beginning, the middle, and the end. Okay. Are we doing that? Am I doing that? Yeah. 
I think I am. It's a very, very hard process for me to find those things. Because it's artificial, you think? It's artificial in terms of a life lived. I don't see the short stories in my own life, because my life is long and it keeps on going far past the point that the reader is going to be interested. And when I try to create these people, I try to create their whole lives or as much of them as I can. And then to go back and say, this has an arc, it has a, a resolution, it has a, a momentum that fits, is very, very challenging. And so my failed stories are the ones where you get to the ending, it's not an ending, or you're dissatisfied, or you're lost, or, or you had it all together five pages ago. And so there were a lot of those. In Barton's Kitchen, I know there is only Minute Rice, Mr. Christie's Cookies, tomato sauce in cans, nothing that's hard to pronounce or to fit into your mouth. White bread. I think that is um, what she's thinking. Just not interesting enough. Not brave enough, not adventurous. Yeah, he really waits for her. He figures if anything's going to happen, she's going to have to lean over and kiss him. Yeah. So he's a bit of a chicken shit. It's <laughs> a good term, I think, yeah. Because he's sort of hitting on her. Well, just the mere fact that they talk a bit after class, he offers her a ride home. So it could have been something, but it was up to her to make it happen. Yeah. And again, I think this is a personality question. Like, Depending on who is on the receiving end of that offer, it could be fine, but it's about her kind of defining what she wants and not wanting that. Taking charge. Or maybe she wants a, the man, a man in her life who will take charge or who is adventurous. Yeah, that's kind of the next page, right? What she goes on to do or to pursue. I'm working on that. <laughs> I'm speaking with Rebecca Rosenblum, who is the author of a collection of short stories called Once. And we're riffing off Flannery O'Connor. Let's then have a look at... When you can separate theme from meaning, you can be sure the story isn't a good one. I've read that quote before. I'm afraid of theme, afraid to write with theme, afraid to write with a big idea. I will sometimes go back when I'm on like third draft and look for that and see if there are connections or patterns that I could strengthen that are there, the dubious word, but organically out of the events that I'm trying to draw. I think there are writers who successfully work with big themes or big ideas, but um, I'm not there yet. <laughs> Difficult to shoehorn a theme into a short story, too. Yeah, or, or an issue. Anything that kind of, yeah, could swallow the story. When she said that, I automatically thought of, of what people say about poems. It's like you can't really explain it because it, it is what it is. You have to read it. And in fact, she gets on to saying a way to say something, a story is a way to say something that can't be said any other way. It takes every word in the story to say what the meaning is. Uh, And you tell a story because a statement is inadequate. 
Yeah, that's something that I really feel, like especially now where people would like to know quickly what my book is about. And something that I always say, a perfect map of the world is the size of the world. Like you can't say these things shorter or faster or better. That's all I got. Well, and this gets into statements only help you experience the meaning of the story. Fiction is experienced meaning, not abstract. Yeah, I think if experience, maybe by that she means empathy, like you, you try to go as far inside the story as you can. If we go way back to Aristotle, when he talked about mimesis, basically the author tries to get the reader or the audience to feel exactly as they intended them to feel. And it's how you do that. Yeah, it's a scary thought that you're trying to access someone else's feelings through through the page, but it is. It is because that's how I feel when I write these things and think about these things, and I really do want to, to share that with somebody through the work. And so the words and the sentence construction and the metaphors and the commas all have to be in service of that feeling. Which is a weird thought. It's like music. You're putting structure. You're building something that's rational in an effort to, to result in something that's emotional. Maybe that's why it's hard to talk about. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, I mean, clearly there are techniques that have been used that have been very effective. So we can talk about the technique. Uh, the proof, I suppose, is in the number, partly, in how wide your impact is with this effort. But, but then again, if you can move one person to tears or whatever it is you want them to feel, then it's, I suppose, a success. Yeah, yeah. When people tell me that they were upset about something bad, or even that they laugh, like just to have yeah. that, that physical manifestation of something they read of mine is kind of cool. You know, it's funny you should mention, you know, even if they should laugh. What's one of the key things that I would judge a, a work of literature on is if you can make me laugh out loud, then it's pretty damn good. It's true. I should not cast aspersions on humor. It's hard to do when I, when I laugh at my own work. I'm like, yeah. I remember uh, there's a scene in Tom Wolfe's Bonfire of the Vanities about this police inspector on the job. Uh, and throughout the whole novel, he's sort of flexing his muscles and his neck and he overhears the woman doesn't realize that he's in the room she's on the phone or something and there's a group of people listening and she talks about this fucking asshole with a big thick neck trying to prove he's macho i didn't do justice to it it's very <laughs> very funny you're not casting aspersions on humor no. that would be one of your objectives well, like I said earlier, like the first motive, the first first motive is to write the stories that I want. It's very hard to get stories out into the world and to get people to read them, let alone get what you mean. Just, I think it would be impossible to write if I didn't love the stories as themselves. These are little sort of statues that you're chipping away and, and forming something that you then treasure? Absolutely. I don't know if they're as static as a statue because I think the things that were written longer ago have changed for me and I still care about them but they mean different things for me now just as I assume they mean different things to different people. Mm -hmm. um, it's a little more fluid than stone. Mm. I definitely want people to laugh. Life is funny and weird and I 
do want to convey some of that. Like a story like Tech Support, which has like a lot more humor in it mainly, but it still comes out of like this kind of minute wretchedness of a certain situation. It, it, it has a, a bigger import in those characters' lives, but it is, to me, very funny. Well, let's just wrap up with Flannery then, shall we? Okay. Because she says, good stories reveal the mystery of existence by showing the concrete. Details accumulate meaning for the, the actions that are depicted and become symbolic. What do you think about that? Are you trying to reveal the mystery of existence for us here? I mean, that's what everybody wants, I'm sure. I'm uh, not quite that ambitious, but I, I want to, yeah. I mean, everyone who writes wants to show a life on the page, wants to show a little bit of, of real life, or shed some light on it, if not actually show. Help someone? You want to help someone get through their life? I don't know. I think understanding always helps. The more you know about the world, the better off you are. Also, I hope you're entertaining. You know, funny or sad and interesting and weird. Weird. Speaking of weird, Chili Girl. It's a little bit weird. It's a little bit weird. It's a short story. It's the second one. And in fact, it's funny. When I, when I read that, I thought of Once Upon a Time. What do you take from fairy tales? Chili Girl came out of an older series that I was doing that really was reworking a fairy tale in the specific with the human details and the human emotions, which are often seem to be lacking in the Grimm's versions, and to put them with real people, kind of trying to live through those things and not archetypes. And so I wrote a, a number of them, and this was maybe the best one and the one that made it into the book. Another one was published recently, Joyland. What's Joyland? Oh, it's a short story website. Emily oh. Schultz runs it. Uh, it's a great, lots of good stuff up there. Oh, okay. So, I still love fairy tales, and I still love kind of trying to, to go into a little box like that and then do all kinds of stuff from within there. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. There, there are definitely pieces that people have opinions on. Of the stories I've read, I think the opening paragraph of Zoom is the best written. Oh, thank you. I, uh, I think it's very, very good. I wonder if you could read it for us. Of course. The house was tidy brick, dormered windows and white-painted trim, but the roof shingles were green-gray, pond scum ugly. Nobody complained or even remarked on them, though. A roof is above what happens, above what matters. Under the shingles were struts and load-bearing walls, candy-pink insulation and chipped paint in a shade called almond frost. Under all that, it was almost summertime. Yeah. We tend to think in uh, visual terms... One of the Harry Potter movies starts with the camera high up and then slowly going down toward the ho- the roof of the house and then finally right into the house. And that's the zoom shot that I... W- I mean, not from Harry Potter, but from any, any film, the zoom shot where it's a city, it's a street, it's a house, it's a family. I get hung up on a sense, and I mean, I try not to do this. When I look at first drafts, it's a smell story, it's a taste story, it's a visual story. I don't know why I do that. I think I maybe can't focus on a lot of different balls at once. This is a looking story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I just love that, uh, that pond scum. That's, uh, that rocks. <laughs> Thank you. Pond scum ugly. I can really picture that. I know exactly, I know exactly the houses. And there's a lot of them. 
to look like that. And, and, and many of the characters have the same names throughout these different stories. Yes, people come back. They're not exactly linked stories. Some of them have more overt links than others. I don't know, an attempt to find an appropriate metaphor. I've called it a neighborhood, because these people could walk past each other on the street, although it doesn't really come up. I think they're kind of all of the same world. Sticking with Zoom here, they just talked dull post office chatter, which is great. Water cooler banality. Kids mainly liked the sound of their parents' voices anyway. If you don't stop there, you say, probably. That's a question. You don't know? I don't know. I don't have kids. Um, And it's, it's hard to tell with anything. I'm the queen of qualifiers. It's very hard to impute an emotion to someone else and say, this is how that person feels. Uh, Even though you're their creator. It's tough. I, sometimes I feel like I don't know, like I don't have access into that. And sometimes I know, and the characters don't know it about each other. And I have to make sure there's not somebody omniscient within the framework of the story. You see stories going wrong with that one person who just knows a little too much about everything. Well, I hope that your success with this book is unqualified. Thank you. I'm having a good time so far. Do you want to say something else about what it is you want to do with your life (laughs) as a writer? I want to keep going, I guess. I'm into the second one now, and I like that. I'm having a good time. Are you writing to, I mean, it's a difficult question, but to, first of all, to exhibit your talents or to make a difference in someone else's life? Oh, I'm writing to learn. Learn how to be a better writer. Learn more about the world and how people work. Because sometimes writing a fictional person gives you a lot of lessons about real people. And I hope that I can share some of that in in the world. Like, it's nice that I can. It means a lot to me when people come to me and say that they were moved by my work. And that's an incredible joy. And it makes it it easier to do the next thing. Like, I would write in in a box with nobody else, but I do easier when people are getting it and responding and asking questions and not getting it and wanting it to be better next time. I want it to be better next time. Karen. Yeah, that helps. I've always I've always had a lot of, um, not always, but recently I've had a lot of support from Leon Rook and from John Metcalf and from Dan Wells and from my friends and my writing group and my family and my classes at U of T. And to have so many people say, I don't think this is very good but I mean you'll work it out like you're talented I think you can fix it and I think you, this is how you can fix it that makes it a lot easier to sit down at your desk when you're when it's not always good but people think it could be eventually I'm going to try to be worthy of all that that's what I'm going to do next that's great thank you this was fun thanks very much for taking the time I enjoyed myself thank you for inviting me